At least once a week, I have this sort of general interaction. Sometimes I'm doing it to someone, and sometimes they're doing it to me. It's, it's not what you think. Uh, it's about complaining about Politician X. Um, we thought Politician X was good and correct, uh, but they've done something um, that's bad and incorrect. And usually I, I, I get a, a, a link that says, um, why did politician X do this? This is crazy. But sometimes I'm actually um, calling someone and saying, what can we do to hold this person accountable? Why is this happening? Um, do leftist movement candidates sell out? Do they get uh, corrupted? Do they get, are they elite captured, as I've said before? Um, here to shed some light on this subject, comrades and friends, is someone who is usually here anyway. Uh, Super producer Carl has dropped a medium post uh, exploring this in a, in a really sort of measured, thoughtful way. Um, and I want to talk about it. So we're just doing us today. Yeah. That's how we're doing it. Just the two. Yeah. First time since, like, early 2022. By the way, if everybody doesn't know... People have asked, we, we just had this uh, social uh, school board uh, election, and I felt really, like, engaged in it because more and more people are now, like, just texting me out of the blue and being yep. like, who should I vote for thing, Yep, which is cool. And, uh, and yeah, so our, our, our group got, got a good result. It was a good group up here, yeah. And, and Danger, D- Danger, he got, the, he got the fucking... Danger wins. He got, that's right. Always does. Bunker bump. We call that the bunker bump. Yep. So yeah, we did we did pretty pretty well um, with that. But comrades and friends, as you've probably gleaned by now, this is your Highlands Bunker podcast. Um, not only are we in the shadow of Rockford Tower this weekend, but also the the famous Wilmington Flower Market. Mm. So because they, they always run the picture with Rockford Tower, of course, and I think of it because I do the bit at the beginning. So yeah, let's talk about this this, this medium. Uh, Speedium post. I, I, I read it today, and I, I thought it was really interesting because the concept is, do movement sort of leftist progressive politicians sell out? And what you've done is sort of like explain that it is a complex sort of issue, mm-hmm. and that the thing you really have to look at to, to even even gauge it is sort of how campaigns work and how the the legislature works in this case but how once they're an elected official how yeah. what what pressures would 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 sort of uh, would would work on this person or influence yeah. the person who's in the position um let me read a little there's a, there's a, there's a little bit at the end here which i i thought was uh, very interesting because uh, I knew you were reading this book, uh, yes, Hegemony we How a, To. A WFP uh, yeah. book club. So when I got to the end of the first section, uh, I was interested. So that we'll, maybe we'll start out with that yeah. sort of setup. As Jonathan, as Jonathan Smucker says in Hegemony How To, 
The knowledge of what the problem is and the knowledge of how to fix it are two completely different things. However, the knowledge of the second requires the knowledge of the first. I will begin by laying out what I believe are some of the reasons that selling out happens in the first place, then moving into how we can address it. So do you want to kind of set up your thought process? Because I think you're right about this and and trying to sort of explain to, you know, just the regular person who's interested how, like, how these influences happen. Yeah. So I think it's important to sort of start by talking about what selling out kind of means, because that's I this, this piece. I started working on this probably six plus months ago. Um, as many things as just sort of an idea I had where I was like, oh, just, you know, I want to expand on this meant like for myself to begin with and then see if this is something worth pushing a little bit more uh, because it's something I think about a lot in my current position with the Working Families Party because we work with a lot of great movement candidates and sometimes they do good things. Sometimes they do things I probably don't agree with and we've had our disagreements. Uh, but then because Delaware is kind of the state that it is, it's honestly not something we necessarily, we don't get into as much discourse about it as I think you see nationally. Like I saw just today, the Providence DSA, like, non-endorsed somebody for a congressional seat because they did oh, they did this thing they did this thing they did this thing they like unendorsed somebody because they voted for this and that so that it's not something we see as much here because our left is a lot more new so i think a lot of people kind of get away with a lot more uh but when we talk about selling out i think there's sort of the very broad version that people think of as like they're not doing what we thought they should be doing like they they ran as like this movement candidate and now they're sort of like tacking towards the establishment and then there's sort of the more specific like this person literally sold out like this person got a donation or they got a house from somebody and they started voting this way for like a very specific like monetary or personal gain so i don't really talk about that second one much because i have not seen that happen at least in my experience yeah and it generally doesn't happen to i mean it doesn't really happen to, to, to movement people no usually. i mean it, it happens usually, it, it definitely it's, does it's happen to movement people but i think one of the the first things as the movement has been coming together in the last four to six years, say, is yeah. is the structure that's like a vetting process and a training yeah. and a training process. So I don't that definitely does happen, but I don't think it's relevant to the the cohort that we're talking about. Yeah. Like that we, as, that we spend time thinking. As about. far as I'm aware, it doesn't happen recently here in Delaware. I'm sure it's happened at some point. But so yeah, we're talking about like the broader selling out where it's like this person ran on these broad values or these specific values sometimes. And then once they get into office, they are sort of taking a different approach to politics, either very directly in terms of how they vote or more broadly, just in terms of how they legislate. So like they don't really listen to the community anymore. They don't support these sort of sets of issues, this or that. So um, I don't think anybody has fully accused any of our WP candidates yet of being sellouts. I've heard some like very unhappy and expressed some very unhappy ideas about certain votes, but I think they're all still very much sort of, you know, fairly good, which I, I appreciate seeing. Uh, but I think the people that I've heard this most and about like sort of, if I'm trying to use a Delaware example and I apologize in advance of these two, like the ones that I hear the most are Brian Townsend and Tizzy Lockman, who we had in the, bunker a few months ago where and they were together so i think it's fair to yeah so they were both people who were elected uh brian was elected in 2012 on 
Uh, he had a lot of UD students come out. He was kind of like the, to the extent that we had movement candidates at the time, he was kind of like the movement candidate. He took out a super entrenched kind of corrupt, uh, I believe he was the speaker or the Senate pro temp at the time. But, uh, so, you know, he got in on like a very, and he was like the progressive challenger. He was very young at the time. I think he's still in his twenties. Uh, and you know, it's a really big victory and not something that you saw a lot of in Delaware politics at the time. Uh, and then Tizzy was elected in 2018. She was kind of the first post Eugene candidate. I feel like I was not involved in her race. So, uh, but she was, you know, came very much out of the network sphere, very progressive, had been involved in education activism for a long time, uh, and won her primary, won the general without any issue. She actually started by challenging an incumbent, but the incumbent dropped out. Uh, and, you know, ran on a very progressive platform with the support of a lot of progressives. And they both now are in leadership. I think they are much, 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 much better than the previous leadership. Uh, and I would not... This is I'm maybe being a little bit sneaky here. I would not necessarily accuse them of having sold out, but some of the choices that they have made in terms of a lot of stuff is stuff that I would disagree with. Um, but so that would be sort of like the example that I've heard the most if we're talking about Delaware. So that's yeah, and I and I think people feel that, and and it's there's a there's a line there because they were sort of um, early challengers to sort of entrenched Delaware way people. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they, maybe maybe they didn't have as much of an affinity, affinity to it than we would have thought. It's like a lesson learned kind of mm-hmm. thing, I think. And the other thing is, and I and I think it's fair to say he'll he'll understand this. When I'm complaining mm-hmm. about this stuff, one of the people I complain to is Drew, yeah. series of of Network Delaware. You know, somebody who thinks about these issues really at a high level, thinks about them deeply, and and wants to put institutions in place to deal with it. We'll just put it that way. And his his comment to me the last time we were having a discussion like this was like, yeah, it, it really um, struck me when I realized that as soon as, you know, we train a candidate and we run a candidate and they're successful and they get to Dover or they, you know, wherever they're going to be, to a city council yeah. or to a county council or to a school board, we have to then sort of think about, okay, well, when are we going to run somebody against that person? Yeah. Like, when are we going to, you know, we don't talk about that. We'll get to accountability because you yeah, talk yeah. about that at the end, like some of the things we can do once the whole process is over. Yeah. But, yeah, it was something very profound that he said. It was like it struck him mm-hmm. that this is not a, uh, <clears throat> and you say it in your piece, this is not an election cycle. Mm-hmm. situation this is a long-term plan there's a lot of aspects to it yeah and so we have to kind of think that way yeah and so that's sort of try basically trying to use that and honestly if brian townsend and tizzy lockman are sellouts i think we're still fairly lucky because i really appreciate the work that they've been doing on tenants right to representation uh to a certain extent on leobor though that is one of the areas we've had some disagreements uh, but like, there's been some specific things, especially around uh, criminal justice reform, that we've been very publicly unhappy with, and then just like running with certain things and not running with other things. That I would say there's disagreements. But yeah, that's sort of like to, to set the frame of like, what are we talking about with selling out? Because um, it doesn't literally mean someone like running away, snickering with two big bags of money in their hands. Um, and then so that sort of what I'm trying to kind of talk about and then kind of set the premise and then walk through it. So 
basically my assumption is that very few people are getting into politics or let's say very few movement people are getting into politics purely out of like self-interest or the desire for power or this or that. Like I think most people who run for office, especially at the local level, but I think if you are choosing to run to the left and not kind of like go the traditional route, I think you probably are fairly honest about why you want to run. Uh, so I'm basically taking everybody in good faith in this process. So basically saying like nobody is trying to be sneaky and like say they believe something that they don't actually believe. Um, which is not the case for everybody. It does happen where people essentially lie their way into office. Uh, haven't seen any specific cases that I can think of here in Delaware, but it definitely happens in other places. So taking that, I want to sort of like, okay, you have a completely earnest, good person who is like, I'm going to run for office. And so then the way I think about it is they enter a series of environments that create a set of incentives for them at every step of those environment and change the way that they make decisions and the way that they even think about decisions that they're making. So, yeah. So you set it out first, the campaign yeah, and the forces of influence that are acting upon a candidate in, in the movement, in the campaign yeah. setting. And I thought it was really, um, well, both not only the campaign, but the elected official part, but you're sort of like, you're behind the scenes, so you're observing this, and you're able to kind of talk about it in a sense where um, you've seen it sort of up close, but not in that position. So I found it really interesting yeah. for you to talk about like how these campaigns work. Yeah, and honestly, it starts even before the campaign, because that's the first thing I talk about. Is like who even runs for office is often determined by things completely outside of people's control. Because to run for office, you need time, you need resources, and you need support. Um, and those things, three things are a lot more easy for someone like me who grew up middle class, white, uh, have some disposable income, other stuff like that. And then for somebody like Deshauna, who is a working class, poor uh, black person, they had a lot more struggles just getting the basic resources they needed to run. And that required a lot of support from people uh, from WP to a certain extent, from DSA to a certain extent, and from like their broader network to even be able to get them to the point where they could run. Uh, and so you end up with a lot of people who have already a certain perspective, already sort of a sort of privileged perspective that are even able to run for office. And then we get into that that campaign setting where it's less bad at the local level, but when you especially look at like congressional, Senate, any statewide candidates, uh, which I have not worked on directly, but I've helped out helped out with and sort of, you know, done my behind the scenes research on. It really, the higher up you get, the less focused you are on talking to individual people. So I talked like the two big things that a lot of these campaigns focus on is fundraising and communication. So fundraising, so getting the money basically that you need to run TV ads, run digital ads, uh, print all the signs you need to, all that stuff. And that brings you into contact with a lot of big donors. And yeah, so there's plenty of like liberal donors, but I, I just use an example from one of the campaigns I worked on where I was... Uh, helping uh, staff a fundraiser for a candidate and the host of the fundraiser took aside the candidate and was like the issue I really care about is wine importation I remember this story um, and that was when it sort of first struck me as like oh these are not like normal people um, and so you know to run for office you need money so you often end up not everybody but a lot of people end up surrounding themselves with these sorts of people 
Um, and so that's one thing. But then I think what gets talked about, everybody knows about that. Like, oh, you talk to a bunch of rich donors, you're going to hear a lot of things that don't necessarily affect everyday people. But I think also the campaign teams are underappreciated in terms of how much they affect the way the candidate, because that's, you know, the candidate will talk to the donors because they have to, but you're not going to be like chummy with the donors a lot of the time. A lot of people are, and then they, movement candidates tend not to be as much, uh, but, you know, it, it does happen. But it's the campaign team members, which when you're running, and we'll, we'll get to sort of the solutions to these things, but often your uh, political campaign team members, they are like, super hardcore politicos they also tend to be skewed to be uh wider more upper class often older um and once again not necessarily really connected with the people who you're actually going to be representing so a candidate can come in with very good grounded expectations and then immediately be surrounded by this kind of like swarm of people who inhabit the political world uh, and are very familiar with like the weird compromises and sacrifices that you have to make and like, oh, you actually have to do this. You actually, oh no, you can't do this thing. Like that sounds like it's cool, but it's actually not super practical. And like you get barraged with this and then very soon your political calculus starts to change to be like, uh, and I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anybody else, not necessarily, I think in a horrible way, but like you start thinking about, oh, I got to knock this many doors. I got to raise this much money. I got to hit these metrics. And you're not really focused as much on representation. Um, and luckily in local campaigns, it's less bad because you don't need to raise as much money. And a huge part of your time is spent actually talking to voters, which I think really helps and why I do prefer local politics and working on local politics. But yeah, like immediately before you even get into office, you're already kind of like inhabiting a political world that is very different than what most people think of as what's important. Yeah, I, I, I thought about it when I was reading it. The fact that, well, two things. Number one is back in the day, and you don't mention this, but you, I'm sure you know, um, the the political campaign was not a campaign. Like the, the candidate was not involved. Mm -hmm. really. There were forces that would, you know, make arguments or you know, leverage whatever political power to sort of get somebody elected. But the person, the candidate, didn't campaign. Mm -hmm. Never talked to anybody. Yeah, like there wasn't that wasn't a thing, and now that it is, it actually, to your point, works to the advantage of the movement because you make that contact yeah. with people who have other who who have other priorities or other concerns. Mm -hmm. But even even then, still now in Delaware, and I think people who probably listen to this are like tied into this idea. Like you might see like a John Carney type. Or at least some blunt Rochester type, like canvas one day, like mm -hmm. one big Saturday. Yeah. Like you'll see a group. They all go out in a group, all the big VIPs. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll see them go out in a particular neighborhood to do one thing, one pointed thing, and that's what they do. So that's the concession that they make. Well, that's garbage. Mm -hmm. I think people should see it like that. But you're right. That that aspect to it of actual contact and looking at people's concerns and kind of breaking out of the the, the, the context that you're in, breaking out of the super voter sort of thing yeah. that you would say before, I think that that's people, that that's very clear. I think people should understand that that's how it works. Yeah. And because, yeah, on that, I, I think there's a lot that we can learn from machine politics um, and a lot of things that I wish we got back. But when we're talking about uh, one of the things that was definitely bad about it was like the 
the focus on the machine over the person running for office, like I generally think the person running for office shouldn't be as quite as material as it is right now, as quite as important as it is right now. But the ability of modern campaigns to like really rely on the candidate being in contact with the people they're going to represent is something that is very important. I do think it is. It's helpful for yeah, and I, and I think until and we talked about this sort of on the side earlier. Until such a time as we can say that we have a block or a caucus or an mm. organized group of politicians, then the person really does matter. Yeah. Because we don't have anything else. Yeah. But when we start leveraging sort of like a, a block, a voting block, mm-hmm. or, a, or a caucus of some sort, then I think... You're you're right. It doesn't really matter as long as this person is, you know, is a professional and they can relate to people and they they're signed up for the platform that we've agreed to together. Yeah. Then it do- you're right. It doesn't matter. But but yeah, we're not we're not at that point yet. You know. Yeah. So, and that kind of gets into that. So you know, let's say person gets elected. Because uh, at each of these stages, like, oh, you could do it. So you could get a working class person running for office. So that's, that's not impossible. It's not common, but you've it's gotten not you've gotten a few elected. Yeah, it's happened. Uh, and then in the same way, we talk about these issues of campaigns. But it is possible to run a grassroots campaign and win. That's another thing we've been trying to do, and I think succeeding in many cases. Uh, so let's say working class candidate runs a grassroots campaign. Now they're in. I, I use the legislature as the main example because that's the one I'm very familiar with. Um, so now, like, what is this final stage? And I think this is definitely the most difficult, and it's the one that, because you'll have a lot of volunteers involved in campaigns, and so they'll have sort of a sense of what a campaign looks like. I think a lot fewer people are sort of familiar with the ins and outs of the legislature, because I certainly was not a few years ago. Yeah, and that's the move you make. It's like, it's one thing to run this campaign, and when we when we get to the sort of the solutions-based part of it, we can talk about, like, why it's important and how we run a grassroots campaign because really what it is is taking people out of the context that some of these campaigns are run in and put them in a different context. Yes. So that the influences and the and the and the forces that are playing on this are different. Yeah. And so you take them out. But then they win and then they go right into a context that is even more rigid. Yeah. More hierarchical, more status quo, more tied to stakeholders. Yep. Uh, than this grassroots campaign yep. they just helped win. And so then you get into the elected official bit of it. Yeah, and because I know, you know, you've, you've talked about going to legislative fall that it just has like a hor- an evil vibe. Bad vibes. Um, which is, is definitely true. I mean, I'm, I was going to say, because uh, people give me like shit about it sometimes. Not, I mean, not, not serious shit, but like sometimes they'll be like, oh, come on, buddy, come on. The horrible vibes there. Yeah. Terrible. I, I kind of like it for the sport of it sometimes, just to sort of say, oh, like, there's that person. But, like, there's definitely a different sort of vibe when you go in the legislative hall because it is not, there's, there's no people, there's not normal people there. It's all, it's lobbyists, it's like state agency officials, it's other legislators, it's legislative staff, it's like, it's a lot of people that do this for a living. And that does mean that they have obviously a lot of experience with it, but it means that their priorities are very different than 
what you might think of as movement or like populist or grassroots priorities. It's, you know, if you work for an agency, it's like, okay, I want to just do my job. I want to get this thing done or I want to not do my job, depending on who you are. Uh, if you're a legislator, it's like, I just want to get this bill passed or like I have some weird personal beef with somebody. So like, that's kind of my thing. Uh, if you're a lobbyist, you're like, okay, I represent uh, Coca-Cola. I'm going to make sure Coca-Cola gets what they want. Uh, so you have a lot of people that are just like not normal. They're just like kind of strange in terms of their priorities compared yeah, to like, what I mean, we think I, of. I, I think the way to put it is, and, and you you sort of explained it in, in a sort of an academic way about there's an environment that people uh, are in that have a sort of warped sense of uh, – priority yeah or or warped sort of influences but really what it is and it's the perfect example of i mean it's the ultimate sort of political bubble yes you're in the weirdest place with the weirdest sort of people talking to you and it has almost no connection to the type of campaign that you ran or why you even got involved in the first place yes because you're talking about like esoteric bills that you know, all, all you want to do is like sort of help people, and you were trying to, you know, talk about that. And yeah. now you're in like this weird, this this yeah. weird fantasy land. Yeah, and it's um, and even when you get people from the outside and you get like constituents, it tends to be either like kooks and cranks. Who I, I love me some kooks and cranks. A lot of kooks um, and cranks. Or people who are just like already so hyper involved, and once again, their priorities are not really lining up with what most people's priorities are. Um, and so. You know, you get in there and you're like, what the hell's going on? But, you know, theoretically, you know, you still have these, you want to pass universal health care, you want to make affordable housing, do all this and that. Uh, and this is the point that I, I try to make in terms of like explaining like what the hell's going on in the legislature is that, you know, anybody that has ever worked in an office or in a workplace or any group of people together understands like the concept of office politics. Like this person doesn't like this person. There's a hierarchy where you can't really say this to this person and this and that. And so when people think of the legislature, you're like, oh, it's a representative body. You have 41 people in the state house or 21 people in the state senate, and they each represent the same number of people. You know, it's not any different, but that is not how things actually work because, for one, you have leadership that makes a lot of decisions that are completely outside of your control. And then you have some people that have been down there for 20 years, some people have been down there for five years. Uh, and it's just like a very complicated set of like personal relationships, beefs, vendettas, friendships, uh, both between legislators amongst themselves, but also legislators amongst other people. And the issue is like, okay, that's all well and good when it's office politics, but like each of these people has an equal vote. So if you need to, let's say you actually want to pass legislation, and then this is where we get into the Qualco. Like Qualco will call people out. He will say what what is right. Qualco was not very good at passing that. He was not good at getting 21 votes on his bills. Uh, because when you do that sort of stuff, you're stepping on all sorts of weird toes and like uh, strings that are like attached to other things and then everything falls apart. And so when people are like, you have to kind of make that decision. Like, am I, what a lot of people kind of find themselves having to make is like, okay, am I just going to kind of say, speak my piece and just like go forward with it? Or am I going to like, try to navigate this to the extent that I can get 21 votes on these bills. And then that's when we end up like, okay, to get this vote, I have to talk to this kind of person. I have to make this kind of deal. And then you often end up in the situation, especially if you're not grounded in any sort of movement or any sort of like accountability where it's like, 
I'm just going to do whatever the fuck I need to do to get this bill passed. And that's how you see so many bills that are introduced and get whittled down and whittled down and whittled down and whittled down. They're not whittling down for the fun of it, though some people are in the establishment. I've seen this happen where they say, oh, this is necessary for this, but they haven't even had a conversation with anybody. Um, but yeah, I mean, we talked about this. One of the things that sticks out to me when we talked about the Bobby Bird book yeah. was that he got off on, like, we don't like the direction this is going. Yeah. So we're just going to, like, figure out ways to fuck with it. Like, yeah. the stakeholders, like, this interest group, you know, the realtors, or this interest group, the lawyers, or this interest group, they don't like it. Yep. So any any little way we can fuck with it, we're going to fuck with it. Not because we think, oh, this is a good compromise. or We just don't like it, and so... Yeah, so they're going to do whatever they can to make sure it doesn't happen. Right, right, right. And so that is sort of... When you see these bills get watered down, you're like, what the hell is going on? That's usually what's going on is like, oh, Senator X uh, has like this thing where they're f- friends with this person. So they want this to not happen. And then like, oh, this person got outreach from this one constituent that's always bothering them. And they said, oh, I don't really know about this line. Uh, and like, I don't know if I can vote. Out. And so you have like each of these bills usually has like dozens or hundreds of conversations going into it. And so you end up with like this Frankenstein's monster often of this legislation that ends up actually getting introduced and passed. And so then it's like, well, do I vote for this and just like go along to get along or do I not vote for it and then risk pissing everybody off and having it still pass anyways? Um, and then with your legislation, it's like, okay, do I introduce like the best version of it and have a dying committee or do I like water it down and maybe have a chance of passing? So it's those kind of decisions that a lot of our legislators end up making that I think is when it comes to like that, when we're talking about, okay, are they selling out? It's often when those decisions get made of like, okay, I'm going to water my bill down or I'm going to vote for this piece of legislation that I know is bad because it's going to pass anyways and I don't want to piss too many people off or lots of decisions like that, which I think my contention and we can, t- maybe this can be one of the conversations, especially later is like, I think that is sometimes an okay decision to make. Uh, if you don't have any control, because I know a big one is like first vote of the year is to vote in a speaker and the speaker vote actually already happened because the caucus votes and they, they select just among Democrats, like who are we going to nominate a speaker? And there's a vote there. It's completely private. Literally, even the legislators don't know who voted for who. Yeah, and I, I, I want to talk about that, too. But um, go, go, finish, the, finish the story, and then I have a broader point to make. And then it goes to the floor, and then they basically introduce a resolution, and it's basically a voice vote where everybody says yes or no. Uh, and I know that was something that a few people got angry with some of our people. It's like, oh, they voted for Pete. It's like, there's no other option, literally. Um, because maybe they didn't vote for Pete in the caucus. You have no way of knowing that. I have no way of knowing that. Um, I know we talked about that, like there was a challenge this year and I would imagine a lot of our people did not vote for Pete in that challenge. I don't really know because it's a completely private ballot. Um, yeah. And that's, I guess maybe, maybe I should bring up my point and you can sort of yeah. talk about it. Have you went, I understand having, you know, private conversations when you're working on anything. Yeah. Like, you know, I talk about everything I'm doing. I try to be very clear about it no matter what I'm working on. But you have private conversations with people. Yeah. That's fine. But the idea that, and you said it yourself earlier, and I think, and we've talked about it over and over again, one of the thing, one of the institutional 
controls is that it really doesn't matter about anything other than who's in leadership and where these bills can be funneled to mm-hmm. as long as there's stop gaps. This is another Bobby Bird thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know where to throw these stop gaps. Yeah. So, so the caucus... The Democratic caucus yes. is having a meeting yes. about who's going to control all that. Yep. And completely private. But it's completely private for, for comedy reasons. We don't want to know what these what these people are doing to pick the people who are going to run yep. the, the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. And as and, far as I'm aware, it did not used to be like this. Like you can look at older coverage of leadership elections and you'll see who voted for who. So I don't know when this started. Yeah, and again, this is a perfect example of like this is an this is an institutional norm. Yeah, like I was just reading about like the blue slips for these justices, oh, okay, yeah. right? All that bullshit <clears throat> it doesn't even mean anything. Yeah, it's not. It's just an institutional yeah. thing that people think is neat, and it's cool that we can like caucus is private and we're going to do a resolution vote. All that's phony baloney. Yeah, that's just for people like I don't want people knowing that people hate my guts. Mm-hmm. Or I don't want people knowing what my real influences are or how I'm trying to use my power in here. Yeah. And and I don't think like I, I'm while <clears throat> while I understand the need for like having a, a conversation in confidence with somebody to sort your shit yeah. out, I I don't think that making that decision is democratic at all and I think it's bad. Yeah. And people should say that it's bad. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one of my personal Beefs that I don't know. I've not really talked this over much with our legislators. Where it's um, I, my opinion is that those caucus votes, especially for leadership, because it's so it's such a f- important vote. Like it's the most important vote you make all year. That should be public. Like they should have a floor. They should have public floor debate. Yeah. All of that should be completely like like it is with um, like the speaker vote for the U.S. House. Uh, I I want them to drag it out for four days like they did at yeah the getting arguments remember yeah. they were getting in arguments and stuff yeah that was that great. was awesome uh, yeah we love that stuff and they still have private caucus votes in the u.s house but i think that sucks too um so yeah i think there's basic things and we talk about like the reforms that could be made there's like institution like inter like reforming existing institutions changes that could be made and then there's like building up new institutions that could you know Sort of self and that that yeah, kind of gets into the second half of. The well, there's one last thing I want to think. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about before we get to sort of solutions because it's another influence that people don't talk about in this way. Yeah. And there's sort of a controversial thing happening right now that um, sort of illustrates it mm-hmm. is the influence of like the professional staffer. Yeah. Because I think you're. I mean, because you are a professional staffer mm-hmm. in a you know. Oh yeah. That like you ha- you bring a. Uh, like you know what you're talking about, yeah. Because today, uh, is it was it the tenth today? It is the tenth. Yeah. The tenth. <coughs> DiFi. Oh god. Was was well first like a day and a half ago they announced she was on her way back to Washington. Yep. Diane Feinstein. Which again was noted like it was like two days ago. Was she taking the railroad? <laughs> like she just she had a stopover in St. Louis and she was almost back. Um. So she missed the first vote, and they they uh, <coughs> you know they they rolled her in. Yep, Strom Thurmond style. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, she looks great. She looks, she looks really, just really healthy, <coughs> which is good. Yeah, 
But the controversial thing that happened and the thing that I the reason I brought it up about like staff is that yeah. the independent journalist Ken Klippenstein mm-hmm. released today all of Diane Feinstein's st- uh, staffers. Yeah. And basically said you have some responsibility in this. Like this is you're working in government like there has to be some way to hold you accountable. Mm-hmm. Because this really shouldn't be happening. Mm-hmm. So the staffers are actually really sort of in some they're influencing this in some way. Now Most on the, likely. Now on the other hand, the other part of this, which I think is a fair way to look at it. I don't I think it's wrong, mm-hmm. but I think it's a fair way to look at it is like you know, these people are just working regular jobs. Mm-hmm. They're working in an office and they're doing the thing in the office and they're just trying to like pay their rent and play, you know, basketball on the weekend or whatever. So I, I appreciate that. But this has like ramifications and you have to be held accountable in some fashion. And I think it shows that influence of the sort of the institutional administrative part of it, mm-hmm. the staffer part of it. Yeah. And I wonder what your thoughts about this are. Yeah. Uh I haven't really thought as much on the Diane Feinstein staffer stuff specifically because uh that the fact that he released everybody is something just because from my experience in working in politics stuff is that usually you have a lot of people with a lot of different roles and some people are completely uninvolved with decision making and other people are like very, very crucial to it. And I think sort of the scatter shot of it is I wish he'd done a little bit more research beforehand. Uh, but there is also very much a case where, yeah, there is a lot of unelected people who make a lot of very important decisions that affect elected officials. And I think the Diane Feinstein thing is a very good example of that. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I don't know. I, I think people who, for people who even know what this is, mm-hmm. <coughs> a lot of those people, like, for people who are going to be hiring these people in the future, say. Yeah. They they have a fairly good feeling about who is involved in sort of executive decision making and who is like, you know, getting the weekly email out about yeah. the or scheduling the fucking you know hearing or whatever. Possibly, I mean, rumors are a thing that sometimes are very inaccurate. Sometimes rumors are a thing that I start on purpose. Yeah. We know that. I love a scurrilous rumor. Like I've been. Uh, I've been the subject, and I wouldn't say I've been subject super inaccurate, but I've, I've been party to, I've been party to subject of party to subject of related to or aware of various rumors that even in Delaware politics, where I was like, oh, that's complete bullshit. I feel like there's rumors about me. I want there to be more rumors about yeah. me. Actually, there's definitely more rumors about me than there used to be. Now that I'm oh oh I know I, yeah. yeah yeah it's kind of exciting. What we talked about today. Maybe I'm going to ask you a second question. Is this a stay in or go out? I don't know how you feel about it before we get to like the solutions. There's this idea, speaking of like rumor or not really rumor, but like a, a way to characterize something and to like control the narrative about something that really isn't true. But like there's this idea that Working Families Party is like a thorn in the side of the of the status quo. Yeah. I think I think it was referred to by someone as the Scarlet Letter. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if you're a rabble rouser, mm-hmm. outside agitator, outside, you know, outside agitator. All these people are coming from the community, of course, but yeah. but there's this 
There's this way of doing it that almost makes it sound like you're an outside agitator. You're outside to the Delaware way. Yeah. You're not a stakeholder. Like, you have no right to do this, to voice your, to organize people. Mm -hmm. How dare you organize people? Is that, um, how, let's talk, let's talk, maybe we'll do this. Maybe we'll start the solutions Mm -hmm. uh, (coughs) segment explaining how you deal with that. Like, what's the strategy? Because the, to me, and I think you probably agree, you're not going to challenge the status quo without being labeled a challenger. Mm-hmm. You know, without being labeled, you can't rabble rouse without being labeled a rabble rouser. Mm-hmm. So you need to sort of, in in some strategic way, embrace it. Yeah, I don't. You know that how you do that is up for discussion. Mm-hmm. So now tell everybody exactly how we do it. Yeah. So Thank Thank I you. think to get to the point where we talk about how we handle it, I think we have to talk about what we're even doing to begin with. Yeah. Because yeah. these solutions are based not entirely, but largely on what WP is doing. And when we had our episode about governing power, a lot of it is sort of related to this. Where, Because basically there's three things that I talk about, which is the having candidates that are rooted in their communities. So find people who are already doing the work in their communities that are already doing activism, that are already involved, that, you know, represent their communities that are uh working that are not all of them but like a lot of them are working class uh uh people of color in these minority majority minority districts have been represented by white people since the beginning of time uh or that like represent you know certain uh workplaces or professions that don't really get represented a lot in uh local especially local politics but politics in general um and so that's, you know, a big part of it is, like, you have to get good people in there. Like, people who are not just uh, have good politics but are, like, accountable to their community because they're already in their community. Because uh, you can elect a very uh, well-intentioned uh, white rich activist, but, like, their friends are all rich white people. And if they make a bad vote, the response they're going to get from their community is going to be very different than if you are someone who has a bunch of family members that need universal health care and you vote against universal health care, it's going to be a very different response than if you're somebody who everybody has their fancy private plans. So that that's sort of one of the first sort of solutions. And then we get into running those grassroots campaigns. So we've talked about it before you mentioned it, the, um, the super voter idea. So a lot of campaigns, we didn't talk about it before uh, explicitly, but... A lot of campaigns get run, and even the field that they do, like the actual talking to voters, they only talk to people that already vote all the time, which is another thing that it skews who you're talking to. So if you're running campaigns that are not just talking to more people, which is good, but like trying to get those people involved, keep, get them active, keep them active around a set of like policy priorities, like raising the minimum wage, uh, around clean energy, around police reform, other stuff like that, then you're not only like being representative, but you're also building a base of people that are going to get involved and stay involved. Uh, And then of course, when you get into office, like that's where it gets a little bit more complicated because there's so many more weird incentives. Like the candidate and campaign stuff is, it's not easy, but it's almost straightforward in terms of like, you got to find a good candidate. You got to knock a lot. You got to talk to a lot of people. You got to, get this certain number of people to come out and vote. Like, it's it's a mechanical process that is difficult, but it's, you know, 
it's fairly straightforward in terms of what you need to do. Uh, but once again, the legislature, you got all this shit. And this kind of gets into that, that question that you asked. And so I think a big part of it when we talk about like what is the role of an insurgent member in a legislature that's not really accepting of them, I think a few different things. One is making sure they have information. Because one of the things we didn't talk about was uh, most legis- almost no legislators read the bills that they're voting on. They All they know about it is from what their legislative aides told them occasionally, but most aides don't actually read the legislation either. Or basically what their colleagues are like, oh, this is this bill. We're doing it for this. Um, and so you said this case, we were talking in the last episode about SB 101, which ended up dying in committee. Uh, even that happened s- today, so that's no no dice on 101. One, so 100 is the one that made it out of committee. So 100 made it out, but 101 is officially not, I, I, not, it, Nothing's ever officially dead, but it didn't make it out of committee, and it's not looking good. Okay. Um, and even the sponsor did not really seem to understand what it actually did until a bunch of people came in and were like, actually, if you read it this way, uh, and like the way it's going to get used is that it actually is going to apply to way more stuff than what you thought. And then they were like, oh. Kind of weird they didn't know that before introducing the bill, but it happens. And so making sure that legislators are armed with the information that they need in terms of like, okay, what do these bills actually do? And like, not like what are they just meant to do, but what could be the secondary effects of this? Like looking at things through that equity lens, like how's this going to affect, uh, you know, frontline environmental justice communities? How's this going to affect working class people? How's this going to affect people who were formerly incarcerated? How's this going to affect people who have senior parents that uh, need active care. Like there's a lot of things that just don't really get thought about and like making sure that there's a lot that can be done without like being, it's being disruptive, but didn't disruptive very productively. Just like asking questions about like, what about this? Uh, did you consider this? I think that is like get making sure people have that information and being willing to ask about it, have those conversations. Basically it's using that incentive of the, oh, I have to win over this many people to get these number of votes. Uh, it's basically using that in reverse and like using that kind of shitty, like, oh God, I have to win 21 people with all their weird bullshit. Uh, basically being like, okay, we're going to be the weird bullshit for the people. <laughs> like we're, we represent this movement. We're going to like actually consider caretakers, parents, uh, working people, uh, people who've been through the criminal legal system, all the stuff like that. So I think that's a big part of it, being able to be that. And then occasionally when it's feasible, being organized to push something or to kill something. And so this is something that like one person cannot do, but several people can do. Um, We saw this almost happen last year with uh, SB7, the bail reform bill or the bail unreform bill, another thing. Another... Yeah, we gotta, we gotta, when we when we make progress, we have to roll it back. Yeah, that's a big, that's important. And so with SB seven, we uh, there was like a group of mostly WP legislators. There's other people too, but WP legislators are really leading the charge. Where they were like, yeah, we're not voting for this, and for X Y Z reasons. Even Sean Lynn, who's not a WP person, but he got up and gave his whole spiel. Uh, he did his like defense lawyer thing, and he brought in a witness and everything. Um, he does. Sean he Lynn. Does. I love what you're trying to do. I wish you would do more of it. I wish you would return my uh, calls. But there's, you know, other points where like legislators, if they have the numbers, can like actively uh sort of, you know, go out and 
try to start or stop these things. And the more people you have, the easier it is. Um, but I think really the most important thing, and this is something that we have not figured out, I don't think anybody's fully figured out, which is like, sometimes you're going to have to make compromises. Sometimes you're going to have to vote for something you maybe don't want to vote for. Sometimes you're going to have to do this or that. But, And this was one of our big issues with the uh, Leobor process was like, you got to communicate. Like you got to be clear about what your intentions are and why you're doing what you're doing. And then you have to be fine when people are like, well, I don't think that's the right decision. And if you're making a bunch of, if your framework is completely out of line with what the community's framework is, either you got to explain it better or you got to start changing what decisions you're making. Um, and we might have, you know, I can't get into every single conversation I've ever had with anybody, but like, I think there's the beginnings of that starting to form. Uh, but like, the the windows have to be flung open in terms of like shedding some light on what the hell is going on in the legislature and the only people that can do that i think are movement politicians people who come from the community people who come from activism that got there to change something and then they're faced with all these things and then you know you take a bit of time to actually learn what the hell's going on because you get down there you have no idea what's going on but once people know what's going on they got to be honest about what's going on. Like they got to say like, well, this is what's happening here. And like, this is something that I'm always very happy with. Like what Medina does is like, she'll say this person's being an issue. Like this person's not letting my bill out. We should get rid of this person. That is the kind of stuff that we need to be doing more of. And sometimes it's not just the legislators are going to be able to do this. Maybe like, that's why we have to have this robust outside infrastructure. And I think DOEP is hopefully the beginnings of that, but we cannot be the entire thing of like when legislators are not able to take action because of these weird incentives and weird bullshit rules that come with being a legislator, other groups need to take the action to like run candidates against people. Cause like legislators cannot do that. Um, like they can endorse, but like they can't run a campaign to get like, it's just, it's very difficult. And like being able to just get communities organized and like let people know that this is what's happening. These are the, barriers in the way legislators can help with that but they cannot be the entire thing especially in other people's districts it doesn't it doesn't really work um and then just like being the conduit so being able to translate legislative ease into like normal people like that's something that legislators can do and like uh i mentioned very briefly aoc just in terms of the forced to vote thing which not even to bother getting into i think aoc you know, she's one of the people that people occasionally accuse of selling out. But I think one of the th great things she did, especially in her first term, and she still does some of it, where she would literally just get on Instagram Live and be like, hey, here's what's going on. Here's, like, the issues that I'm having, and here's, like, this new thing that I learned. And I think a lot more of that and being able to communicate to the broader public, like, here's these incentives, here's this stuff. And then having, and this is something that we don't fully have at the federal level. Actually, Working Families Party National is doing trying to do more of this. I don't really know the details because... Uh, I don't do national stuff. I do Delaware stuff. Uh, but you know, having legislators that are willing to, and not just legislators, like once we get people in executive offices, um, local, federal, municipal, whatever, uh, making sure there's people who are willing to communicate, but then also having these media, like people don't like media in the institution, you know, it's the middleman, whatever. But like, it's really important to have people that are dedicated to this. And like have it as like their life's work or their profession or their expertise to be able to coordinate 
like the needs of the community with like the realities of, like our fucked up government. Um, and so you need to have this middle layer that's willing to take the legislator's word and the legislators are willing to be honest about their word uh, and then work with the community to accomplish what needs to be accomplished there. So it's not something that anybody has really fully perfected. Um, and honestly, that's kind of when we get back to like, one of the things that I do think was great about machines is they were really good at like getting constituent services stuff passed. Um, but to the extent that, you know, bureaucracy is a bad word and what I'm kind of describing is kind of bureaucracy, but bureaucracy is bad when the institution itself. So if like the WFP, if that is what it's going to be or any sort of middleman here, if their whole purpose is to just like keep themselves in that role, that's bad. But if they are accountable to both the people and to the legislators that they're working with or the government officials they're working with, that's where, um, that's where I think you need to be because otherwise you're going to end up in the situation where sides are not able to communicate. Like legislators are just going to focus more and more inward. You know, they're going to have this bunker mentality and not in the good way. Not in the, not, um, not the Highlands bunker mentality. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, everybody out there is against us. None of them know what's going on. So we're just going to like reinforce each other. And this thing I've seen happen in the legislature many, many times here in Delaware, even among some good people where it's like, Oh, everybody's mad at us, so like I'm just gonna completely disengage and we're just gonna focus on our people. Uh and then the sort of like mirror image of that, because I criticize the legislators a lot more because this is their fucking job. Uh whereas like the general people is when you get like forced to vote stuff where it's like completely unmoored from any sort of like real strategy, but nothing's fucking happening, so you're really frustrated. And so you're gonna throw shit at the wall and see what works. Yeah. Well this And is that's how- what happens when you don't have this like Ability I, I, to communicate. I think that's the perfect way to sort of wrap it up. Because, like, the reason I'm sort of fascinated with this, you use AOC, and I think it's a good example, again, because it's a polarizing figure, or because it's a, it's because everybody puts their, she's, in some ways, she's like the new Obama. Mm. Like, everybody's putting their ideas onto that, yeah. like, and if she votes for, like, a military thing, people say she's sold out. Yeah. And and again, I think people are correct to be angry about that stuff. Like when if you think she made a bad vote or yeah. she didn't do something, like the be um, mad. that's fine. The one thing that I actually fully disagree with her on, I was like, I do not agree with the strategy was that uh, the uh, the strike breaking resolution. That, oh, that's uh, that, yeah. Well, I'm glad and that's you the one people that bring up. up now because it is actually because that's actually very bad. bad. But. But 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 here's what and I'll that's say. a situation where we don't understand. Like she clearly had some incentives going on there, and the if we try just to say like, oh, she did a bad vote, and not understand those incentives, that's when I think we yeah. Are... Do we think? Do we think generally she's there? And 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 again, th- this is why I bring it up. Yeah, because this is there's there's a there's an alternative way to look at this, and it's not an alternative like you shouldn't be mad when they do something fucking stupid. Yeah. Absolutely. You should definitely be mad, whether it's AOC and the railroad strike or whether it's, um, I don't know, somebody uh, putting their name on 100 or 101. Yeah. You know, whatever. Like, uh, you know, we'll call people I've out. made some angry calls to sure. people I like. Yeah, whatever. You know, like, people should be mad about that stuff. However, the other way, the other thing you should consider is whether this person is challenging the 
the context, the institution in mm-hmm. some way, in a broader sense. Yes. Because that has to happen. You use this. You used a term once in there, and it, it stuck in my mind because people talk about it all the time, and and it's a it's a fraught phrase. Uh, seat at the table. Yeah. You got to be at the table. Yeah. And you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. All this bullshit people mm-hmm. say, which is again, there's there's a there's a there's a truth there. Yeah. The other thing you have to remember when you're there is. You're you're doing the business of the institution, and in some way you have to be, you have to be trying to undermine it. Yeah. You have to be trying to actually, actively change the context under which it operates. Yeah. And you have to be clear about people. To, you have to be clear to people why you're doing it, and why it's important. Yeah. And so, a seat at the table is fine. What are you doing with it? Yes. And what's that table going to look like in two years' time? Exactly. In four years' time, in six years' time, in eight years' yeah. time? Yeah. And then I think to sort of close it out, one of the things, because I just wanted to go over one of the things I didn't really go deeply into, uh, because a lot of this is very procedural. It's very uh, big L liberal in the sense of like, oh, institutions matter and norms matter. Because they do. They, like, I... Um, I forget there's someone on Twitter that like to troll people, they call it, uh, themselves like a liberal socialist, um, which is a thing that actually is a thing. Um, but I think when we talk about, cause a lot of this relies on like an organized people and like movements. And so I think that gets into what I don't really get in this, which is like to make any of this work, you need an organized movement an organized working class an organized populace that is like based around material issues like wages and jobs and control of the means of production, maybe around police violence, around environmental justice, around stuff like that. Like without organized people, none of this works. And some of that can be done by this mediating institution, whether it be the WP, whether it be DSA, whatever, but it also needs to be done like, you need your neighborhood organized. You need a tenants union. You need a civic association if you're a homeowner. Like, you need a union at your workplace. You need co-ops. You need uh, mutual aid groups. You need all these different organizations that are meeting the needs of people and informing them and, like, keeping them democratically active because without that, there's no other side that you're communicating to. And because, like, people are out there, but they're not listening. Um that's why you knock on somebody's door for the first time. The reason that in campaigns we try to knock on everybody's door three times, the first time you talk to them, they have no idea what to talk, what you're talking about. And so that's because most people are not organized into any sort of economic or political force. They go to work, they come home, they play with their kids, they go to bed. Um, and so I didn't address that in this, but I did want to drive that point home, which is like, you can't do this without the big stuff. Like... You can't push for these big things without people that are dedicated to push for those big things. Uh, and I think that is a, and that's often what we see is like, if that countervailing force of that outside force is not strong enough, then no amount of norms, no amount of institutions, no amount of like polite conversations is going to be able to change what's really going on. So that's a very big thing to not include, in, but I think it is important to at least acknowledge it uh, because you can make things better with just having some of these changes, 
and you can make things a lot better in a lot of cases, but you cannot really meet the goals that you, I know we're all trying to meet by just having like a better set of knobs and levers. Like you have to have a organized group of people that are pushing those knobs and levers. Yeah, it's not about tweaking the system. I yeah. think I've, we've made that point before. Yeah. Like, like this technocratic idea that like if we apply some new algorithm to it and sort of tweak the tweak the base and turn up the treble. Yeah. Like that somehow like that's going to be the sweet spot. Yeah. Like I read this uh, news hit last week, I think, and it was about the Delaware uh, Department of Agriculture. <laughs> getting part of a part of some federal funds health funds to like support the <clears throat> support the mental health of small farmers mm. in Delaware and i thought well that's it's good you know yeah. who's going to who's going to say anything bad about that but it's one of those things where it has to be whittled down to like let's well, sort of like the means testing argument yeah like it has to be like how many how many, f- and, and and it could be, you know, dozens, maybe a hundred. Mm-hmm. But like, why don't we just give that to everybody? Yeah. It was sort of like when, um, when Colleen Davis was in here, the treasurer, mm-hmm. and she said, you know, one of the things we did was to make sure we set aside money for um, people who age out of the foster care system mm-hmm. where they have uh, tuition and they have money mm-hmm. to get themselves on their feet and housing and all this stuff. So when they're 18 and I was like, wow, that's really an awesome thing. Like, I'm glad that we yeah. do that. But like how many people, people that's what, right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no question. But then you look at it and I did look it up after. Yeah, it like I think I talked about it. It was like, the, I think the most that it had been in five or six years that there was figures was 22 yeah. in a year. It was like 12, eight, 22, which again, for those people, it's a, it's an incredible thing. Why doesn't everybody get the same? Yeah. Thing and, and we have to be thinking in ter- in those terms. Yeah. You know, we have to be thinking like you're not just going to, you know, turn a knob and move the EQ mm-hmm. this way. It's not going to work. Yeah. That I think that was what that that's yeah. the, that's the most compelling part of it. Yeah. And so that's this is my, what's required. But and so yeah, basically, like this is all very technical stuff, and I think it is necessary. Um, but it's like you got to do both. Like if you just have this big movement, it's like oh yeah, rah, yeah. Uh, but it's like not connected to any infrastructure, then you're going to have what has happened dozens of times in American history where you have this big uprising and then it all falls apart immediately if there's nothing to connect it to. Um, but if you have something to connect it to, but nothing that's being connected, you have the same issue. So it's sort of like a, you know, you need both. Yeah. And this is why, comrades and friends, the scarlet letter of an insurgent the scarlet letter of WFP or DSA or whatever, rabble rouser, mm-hmm. is something that's going to be embraced because we're changing the context. We're changing the context, folks. That's what I just, you know, that's what we're doing. Patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. It would be, it would be extremely helpful, you know, to $5 a month, $10 a month would be actually extremely helpful. We're at uh, Highlands Bunker on Twitter. Uh, so far, as so, what I've done on Twitter, you, you may have noticed, uh, I'm now uh, Delaware's interim cannabis czar. Mm-hmm. 
And so until there's an official cannabis R, I'm just yeah. going to assume that I am that. It makes the most sense. I, I, I people, people seem to think that that makes sense. And so, uh, yeah. I mean, we're just going to we're going to uh, we're going to smoke cannabis until there's a cannabis R, and then we're going to smoke more cannabis after that. Well, it's a good piece, Carl. I have some ideas for it. But, uh, yeah, everyone, uh, we'll hit you back. And the, the thing we really need to remember is that uh, left is best.